It is Palm Sunday, right? <laughs> okay, I see Jeanette saying yep. So, because <laughs> I want to talk about uh, share kind of a Palm Sunday message with you guys. So I think I'll I'll get started. I want to talk about um, obviously you know this week is Holy Week. Growing up in the Methodist Church. Uh, we didn't celebrate it like, you know, certainly Orthodox believers. By that I mean Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox. We didn't celebrate it like Catholics, <clears throat> where we went through the Stations of the Cross and what have you. But uh, we did recognize, I remember recognizing Holy Week. It was marked down on our calendars. I remember going to the Monday, Thursday services where we would um, oftentimes take communion. For those of you that may not know, Monday, Thursday, uh, recognizes the night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas and handed over to the authorities uh, before Good Friday, and then, of course, crucified on Good Friday. Sometimes we would have Good Friday services. And then you had Holy Saturday and, of course, Resurrection or Easter Sunday. And I remember going as a little boy to the Methodist Church on Palm Sunday, and they would give us palms, and we would talk about Jesus and his triumphant entry. So this is the week that we celebrate commemorate, think about more deeply as Christians, the passion of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his sufferings. And I want to take a uh, fresh look at that and continue to challenge uh, the predominant paradigm that this whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross was a sacrifice that was being given to appease the anger and the wrath of God. Now, before we get into some of the basics of it, one of the scriptures that people always bring up, and I'm using the King James Version here, <clears throat> comes from 1 John chapter 2. And I find it interesting the way it's used. But anyway, I'll read it to you from the King James. It says, My little children, these things I write unto you that you may not sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the King James writers translate or use the word propitiation to describe the sacrifice of Jesus in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. So what does the word propitiation mean? If you look it up in an English dictionary, the word propitiation means basically to appease. It means to satisfy someone's wrath. So if you go strictly by the English, then it's very clear that the Bible does teach that uh, Jesus was the sacrifice that took the wrath of God for us, not only for us, but for the entire world. And I guess, you know, there are lots of issues with Scripture, <laughs> and there's some things I'm going to be doing. I might as well mention it now. If you haven't, I have a YouTube channel. It's called The Awakened Person. You can type in my name and The Awakened Person. It'll come up. Uh, if you want to subscribe to that, that would be great. I'm trying to grow that and get more subscribers. Trying to put more content up on that. Like I said, I've been working harder from home than I was when I was before the stay in place. But that should slow down for me. So I'm really hoping for the opportunity to get more done there. And then if you're subscribed to my New Day Church channel, you can put my name in and subscribe New Day Church also to another channel. I'm going to use that one specifically to talk about issues relevant to Christianity and where we're at today. And so I'm going to talk about the Bible and the scriptures and how we got it and, and you know, 
what scholars actually say, what scholars actually say and actually agree upon when it comes to uh, the Bible, for the most part. There's a group of evangelicals that split off from uh, the real scholarship and created their own independent Bible study um, and Bible scholarship um, society, and they're putting out books. I have a number of those books, but they refuse to engage with what they call quote-unquote liberal scholars because they for the most part, want to turn a blind eye, at least in my view, looking at it, want to turn a complete blind eye to some of the issues that are there. So we're going to try and look at Scripture and take a balanced look at that. But if we go by the King James Version, it does look like Jesus dies as a sacrifice for our sins to appease the wrath of God. But the fact is, the Bible actually doesn't teach that, because in the original languages, in the Greek language, that word does not mean that at all. And your newer translations reflect that. So the Greek word there is hilasterion. Uh, it comes from a group of words in the Greek where the root is hilismos. And this word refers or relates specifically to the feast day of atonement. And I'm going to come back to that in a minute. But it, it does not mean to appease the wrath of God at all. It actually means to wipe away and to cleanse something, to purge something. So when we read it that way, then it does not say that Jesus was the propitiation, the sacrifice that was satisfying the wrath of God for our sins. It says that Jesus was the sacrifice that took away or wiped away sin. So that fits with what John says in his gospel in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the issue is... Uh, who is being acted upon in the sacrifice. If we say propitiation, then God is being acted upon in the sacrifice. So basically what they're saying then is God gave himself to act upon himself to take, a, to take away his own wrath. God gave himself as a sacrifice that he would, the sacrifice would be the cause and he would become the effect and his wrath would be taken away. But helisterion actually means that it's the sin that's acted upon, not God. So therefore, in the giving of himself, his blood takes away the sin. The sin is what's acted upon. And uh, so the change occurs, not in God or in the heart of God, the change occurs in humanity or does something with the sin of humanity. Now remember, if you watched last week, I talked about, you know, this word sin is hard to define. You want to make a Christian stumble? <laughs> I better say that wrong. <laughs> I mean, I better say that better. I said that wrong. Not make a Christian stumble. I'm sorry. Boy, somebody could clip that quote and take it and run with it. If you want... To <laughs> sorry. If, if you want to make them struggle with something, not on purpose, but just ask them, what is sin? What is sin? Because they'll struggle to define it. I know I did. Now, if they can read their Bible commentaries or they've done enough research to read, you know, concordances and things like that, they'll say, well, it's, uh, it means to miss the mark. If they are really, you know, studied in it, they might say it's the Greek word hamartia, which means to miss the mark. But in fact, hamartia was a word that was used in the ancient Greco-Roman world to describe the inherent character flaws inside of a 
person in a drama. So in other words, a tragedy. You think about a drama or a tragedy. And the point of the tragedy was to teach that there was some flaw inherent inside the character of the person that led to the person's own downfall, that led to the person's own demise. And that character flaw was specifically described as hemartia. So it's again, it's dealing with our flaws and turning us away from the things in our life that get out of control that lead then to our own downfall where we create our own pain and we create our own destruction. So it's never about God punishing us. It's not even really about justice or judgment. This has nothing to do with satisfying the justice of God, has nothing to do with satisfying the righteousness of God, has nothing to do with satisfying the wrath of God. Uh, the whole idea that righteousness is transferred from Jesus to us comes out of Martin Luther and the Reformation, and it comes really from the thing that Martin Luther was opposed to, and that was the selling of indulgences. So in the, as the Catholic Church developed, uh, they developed this idea that you had to attain a certain level of character or virtue or righteousness within yourself. And it wasn't a legal righteousness, it was more virtue. It, it, it came from that Greek idea that you cleanse your flaws and you develop virtues. And they even came up with the seven deadly flaws, things like sloth, things like uh, gluttony. Those things would lead to your own demise. So what they said was that there were certain people who went so far in the development of virtue, they went so far in the development of righteousness, that they overindulged in it. They had enough to get themselves into heaven, but they also had learned, um, they, they had extra, kind of like extra credit that you would get in class. And so... What the church did to make money was they went around to the wealthy who were worried about their life after death, especially during the time of the Black Plague. Please understand that the cross and the passion did not hold the centerpiece of Christian thought until the, the Black Plague. And I can't remember what was it, something like a third of the population was wiped out. So people are thinking about death, they're thinking about life after death, they're thinking about what happens to me, what happened to my loved ones. And so it's at that point that the passion and the cross and the death and the resurrection and heaven and hell really becomes more center stage. So you set that up so Martin Luther comes in and rich people who were worried about their salvation could buy the indulgences of the saints who had overindulged in piety or righteousness. And then the, the righteousness of that saint or the piety of that saint would be transferred to the person who purchased it. And so what... Martin Luther did and the reformers as they worked within that model and they said Jesus indulged in righteousness Jesus indulged in virtue so much for all of humanity and you don't have to buy this indulgence you can receive this indulgence by faith and so later this structure then comes into the centerpiece of theology that God had rejected us for our sins, that God uh, would ultimately bring the universe into accountability and justice, which was a projection of our own need to understand why bad things happen to good people or, you know, where is justice in this? And so ultimately this apocalyptic idea that God's going to bring everything to, uh, to account, everything to bear, and only those who believe, so in other words, instead of buying the extra credit, if you will, you believe in the sacrifice of Jesus, and then his righteousness becomes transferred to you, while he also becomes the propitiation or the one who took away the wrath of God. And so this whole structure and system gets set up, and that's the lens through which we read the scriptures. 
But if we come back and we read the scriptures through their own lens, and we particularly a Hebraic, and I'm being very careful here to say Hebraic and not Jewish, because there is a difference, and I don't want to go in and explain that. But if you look in your, your better translations today, the new New International Version, not the one from 1984, but like the one from 2011 or something, it will say that Jesus Christ is the mercy seat for our sins, but not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. That's going to become important in a minute, the sins of the whole world. He is the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat was a was was on the lid to the Ark of the Covenant. And so, in order to understand what is being said here by John, we have to go back to a... A Hebraic religion that is very, very different than rabbinic Judaism. See, one of the problems that we have, I think, with understanding some things about who Jesus is, is even oftentimes when we try to put Jesus back into his Jewish roots, uh, the quest for the historical Jesus, the Jesus seminar, trying to understand the historicity of Jesus Christ and try to understand who he is, uh, then we have to put him as a person who is also a person who is in his own time, who is in his own context. And because he was Jewish, because he came from Judea, then we try to place him within the context of what we know about Judaism from that time period and then see Jesus as a byproduct of that, which I think is, you know, makes sense. But he isn't necessarily the byproduct of rabbinic Judaism. And if you go back to uh, Solomon's temple, if you go back even to Moses and the tabernacle in the wilderness, you begin to understand that what was central to the Jewish people was not so much Moses and the Torah and the law. In fact, it was completely lost. It's not until King Josiah comes that the Torah is found. But what was central was the temple and the rituals and the sacrifices and David and the Davidic line and the kingdom. And that's the context in which Jesus is showing up, Jesus, the son of David. But he's also showing up in the context of the temple and temple sacrifices. So there was a cycle of feasts in Israel that was very, very important. The spring time would be kicked off by Passover, where we are now, the Feast of Passover. And you would go through the agricultural season until you got to the final feast of the harvest season when the oil and the wine would be harvested, what we call the Feast of Tabernacles. And... During the Feast of Tabernacles, there was Yom Kippur. There was the Day of Atonement. And in Yom Kippur, the high priest of Israel would go into the temple. And in the temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat. And then God's glory and God's presence resided upon the Ark of the Covenant. And we are told in the Old Testament that the high priest would enter in through the veil, and he would take two goats. He would take the first goat and he would sacrifice the goat. He would kill it and he would sprinkle the blood of that goat upon, excuse me, upon the mercy seat. And that would cleanse the sins of the nation of Israel for that year. 
And then he would take the other goat, and they would lay hands on this goat and transfer the sin of Israel from Israel to the goat. And then the goat would be led, we're told by um, some midrashes, that the goat would be led through the camp and the goat would be uh, punished. The goat would, the goat would be mocked. The goat would have uh, uh, stones thrown at it, whatever, and it would be taken and thrown off a cliff. And that goat, that scapegoat, would take away the sin of Israel. How's everybody doing so far? Is everybody following me okay? I hope so. Because uh, this really isn't the point. I, I have to give you this context. Because what I want you to understand is that even though this is happening during the time of Passover, the New Testament writers take the sacrifice of Jesus and they fit it or frame it within this idea of atonement or within this idea of Yom Kippur and within this idea of the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is really what I wanted to get to and wanted to talk about. Jesus as the scapegoat who takes away the sin of the world rather than the sacrifice that cleanses us, rather than something that appeases the wrath of an angry God. So what is a scapegoat? Uh, I want to refer to someone by the name of Rene Girard, who was a cultural anthropologist, who I think has really hit the nail on the head, who, by looking at ritual and sacrifice and the role that ritual and sacrifice plays in our society and played in ancient cultures and and plays in uh, every culture of the world, this idea of sacrifice, uh, this idea of violence, actually, and how it affects our psyche, I think is really, really powerful. And if we view Jesus through the lens of René Girard, we understand this completely differently than we have. And I think, I really, really do think that he's onto something that is really relevant today, to today with all the pain that people are feeling from the COVID-19, coronavirus from being from the shelter in place, from the economic pain that we have not really felt yet. Um, and who knows, you know, how this thing is going to go and how this thing is going to play out. So I want to bring on this Palm Sunday the scapegoat idea of Rene Girard front and center here. So what was the scapegoat idea? So Girard comes up with a theory that he calls mimetic theory. It comes from the word to mime. And he notices that within human relationships, there is a competition that is created over resources and things, even if there's abundance, even if there is enough for everybody. You can clearly see this when you have two kids, have two little boys, right? When they first started out, I mean, come out of the womb practically, and you would buy them toys. And I remember, you know, they'll fight over Legos. And they got tons of those little Lego blocks that they could all be using and whatever. But they'll get in there and they'll argue, no, this one's mine. And there could be a bunch of others laying around that are exactly the same. But they're fighting over what the other person has. And so as resources uh, or things that we desire uh, begin to be consumed... Also, this idea of, of mimicking, miming. If somebody else has something, I want what somebody else has. That's the whole issue. I want what somebody else has. It could be I want their good looks. I want their fame and fortune. I want their whatever. It's, it's this idea of coveting from the Bible. You shall not cover your neighbor's goat, donkey, you know, house, wife, whatever. And so 
it's this idea that I see someone else has something and I want it, and it creates tension. And the more people you have in a culture, the more tension that creates. And this tension eventually builds until it erupts into violence, until it erupts into fights. That fighting could be domestic abuse. It could be, uh, it could be on the job, just the way we bicker and fight with one another sometimes on the job. Or on a global scale, it can develop into war. But whatever the case, this, this, um, need for what someone else has, this yearning, uh, this desire unfulfilled, ultimately creates psychological tension until violence finally erupts. And so what cultures did was they created sacrifice systems with animals where they would do rituals that would allow the people to symbolically act out their violence and therefore release their tension and transfer their sin, if you will, to the animal so that they could find peace. So in Israel, once a year, they would act this drama out on the Feast Day of Atonement where they would take the scapegoat and punish the scapegoat for the sins of the community. And so that's where we get the term being the scapegoat. And what's really fascinating is that from a psych psychology perspective and a therapy perspective, there is a, a scapegoat mechanism that works out in what we call family systems or family systems therapy. If, if you're interested in that, you can Google that or look that up. The scapegoat, just type in scapegoat and then family systems. And I really want you guys to get this because I think you'll be able to see this easily that oftentimes in a family system, particularly where there is substance abuse, particularly where there is really any kind of abuse, but it can be just any kind of tension. This is the result of human tension and that, that wants to erupt in violence, that oftentimes there's a person in the family that becomes the, the bad child, that becomes the person who is to blame, who becomes the child that's picked on. This is the one that's always... Uh, sort of subtly made fun of, or this is the one that's the wayward sister, or the one who is the black sheep of the family. This person becomes a scapegoat, and their role, even though they didn't choose it, their role within the family is to take the blame and the shame and shame and the family tension into themselves so that the family feels better, so that the family feels okay, and then that person bears the shame and the blame of everything else that goes wrong in the relationship or in the family. You can see this on a person-to-person -person level. Anytime someone blames someone else for something that they themselves should be responsible for, um, then they have just scapegoated that person. Uh, you made me mad is scapegoating. You're the reason I'm this way. Look what you did. If you hadn't done this, then I would be okay. That's, that's the root behind it. If you hadn't done this, if you would just act right and you would just do right and you would just play your part and your role, then I would be okay. I'm not okay because of you. And so I'm going to blame you. I'm going to persecute you. I'm going to give you the silent treatment. I'm going to punish you. Because, see, here's the issue. The scapegoat gets punished. The scapegoat gets punished. So whoever gets punished in the family for what's going on, you became the scapegoat. You became the sin bearer 
in that family. Now, here's the most amazing thing about the scapegoat that family systems therapy tells us. Here's the thing. The scapegoat is the truth teller in the family. The scapegoat is the truth teller in the family. The scapegoat is oftentimes the smartest, most discerning one in the family that can see, wow, this is really effed up, man. This is really not cool. This is really dysfunctional. And they become the truth tellers, uh, either through their actions or through their words directly, which then makes them the perfect target uh, for all the anger and all the tension and all the abuse. And then they become that. And so if you grow up in that, if you, if you grow up in that, think about it, if you grow up in that and become the scapegoat, then that becomes your role, at least on a certain level, that becomes your role in your identity. So you're going to find relationships that continually scapegoat you. And if you're the person who needs a scapegoat, you're a person who has very low self-esteem, very low self-esteem, very low self-worth and self-value. So you cannot take responsibility for where you are in your life, you can't take responsibility for your own actions. It's hard for you to say that you're sorry. Uh, you're entitled and spoiled. Um, then you're going to find a scapegoat that you can blame for your actions. So it's easy to see how this works out in codependent families or families where there's substance abuse because the abuser will blame the other person oftentimes for abuse. I don't have a problem. but I don't have a problem. The problem is yours. You're the one with the problem. So again, this, this goes into the whole shadow self thing, right? Because we project our issue onto someone else. The other thing, and I, I, I really need to address this, the other thing that this does that, that, that causes the scapegoat mechanism to work and operate is this idea of dualism. Now, I need to keep hitting this idea of dualism because it's so entrenched in Western thinking, and it is an absolute error. The map is not the territory here. Uh, dualism in the world does not exist. Polarities exist, light and dark. So if you think about a light switch that just flips on, and you walk in and you flip on the switch, you have light, you flip off the switch, you have darkness. It's binary. It's either or. It's black and white. And one of the primary symptoms or pathologies of all psychological illness is black and white thinking. Because it's a distortion and it does not exist in reality. Everything exists in the gray. So life is more like a light on a dimmer switch. If you have a dimmer switch, you can rotate it or you can turn it up and down. And it's not binary, on, off, black, white. But it, it's, it's various, varying shades or degrees of light and various shades of darkness. And so if you can begin to realize that dualism is this binary thinking where things are either all this or all that. But that that is actually a psychological error in our thinking, a philosophical error in our thinking, and actually not reality at all. That everything exists on a spectrum. Everything and every person has, uh, that there is no person that is all good or all evil. And so we, we have populated a, a cosmos, a world, 
So within uh, a, a metaphysical world, an invisible world, so within the Christian uh, paradigm, which comes really out of Zoroastrianism, you have this idea that there's all light and all darkness, that there's all good, there's a, there's a population of all good and all light, and God, and God, Yahweh, exists in that realm, and the angels exist in that realm. And then there's this realm that's all evil and all darkness, and that's where the devil and all the demons exist, and it's binary and it's separate, and there's no polarities. Uh, people, people within um, the, the what I would call the New Age community, they do this with aliens. You have aliens that are they're all bad and all evil, or they're all good. You have beings of light, but then you have beings of darkness, and 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 they, and, and then we try to fit our personality, ourself, and of course we're always the ones in the light. We're always going to try. You are psychologically wired to put yourself in the best light. So we are always the ones that are going to be in, fit in that good category. And so there's that other out there that's wholly evil. So see, this transfers, this transfers to our relationships and the ways we relate to people groups, especially people groups we do not know or have contact with. And this is a very, very important thing to understand in the operation of the scapegoat mechanism that works out in our relationships. Because we'll take another, particularly in other, oftentimes that we don't know, a people group that we don't know, that we haven't had personal contact or interaction with, and we will think they are entirely evil, that there is nothing good about them. And all that is doing, all that is doing, is serving as a psychological projection of your shadow to allow you to release the mounting pain and tension that you are feeling in your own life because of aspects about your own psyche that you do not want to look at or pain in your own life and circumstances that you do not know how to deal with. And so that tension rises, 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 rises. You can think about it like a pressure cooker. You can think about it like a Pepsi bottle being shaken up till eventually it has to vent. It has to explode. It has to come out somewhere. And so you're looking, you're looking, you're scanning for someone. Someone's to blame. Someone's to blame for the shit we're in. Someone's to blame for this. It works out in our relationships, maybe our families, but, but on a grander scale, someone's to blame for this problem. Who is there to blame? We need to find them to blame. And once we find the man, the anger, and the wrath, and the rage, they are evil. They are darkness. They are horrible. Feel it? It's always to them. It's always them. And if, if we could take away the dualism and realize that human beings are human beings, and if we could look for light in people, see, this is the problem, man. We, we think people are just evil and they're just born in darkness and sin, and, and, and we don't believe in the goodness of, of humanity, so we don't trust. I'm telling you right now, the sinful redemption lens is so emotionally and psychologically toxic to people because it robs us of our inherent trust and trust is the foundation of a healthy psyche. Uh, just look at the work of Eric Erickson and the, the psychological stages that we have to pass through. Trust is primary. And, and I'm telling you right now, there is proof. Uh, babies who are not uh, held, particularly in the first few months, and, and people that are not nurtured for the first two years, will develop what's called reactive attachment disorder, and it's one of the most debilitating psychological disorders out there. Because if you didn't have a mom that came when you cried, that changed your diapers when you needed it, that fed you, 
you develop a gen general distrust in the world. This is not a safe place, and I cannot trust people. On the other hand, if you have nurturing parents that took care of you, that held you a lot, that responded to your needs when you cried in those first couple years, you develop this idea, this is a safe place. I can trust this place. I can trust this world in which I'm living. Now, the psychological damage of the sinful redemption paradigm, the original sin paradigm, is that you're born, people are born evil. They're born in this du duality, this dualistic frame of darkness and evil. And you're taught you can't trust yourself. You can't trust your body, particularly during adolescence when your sexuality is awakening. Uh, you can't trust that. That's a sin. That's God hates that. That That is, that, my beloved brothers and sisters, is evil in and of itself because it teaches you not to trust your own body. Your heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. You can't trust it. You learn You learn to distrust your heart. So you can't trust your own body. You can't trust your own heart. You can't trust your own self. You sure as hell can't trust everybody else that's out there because they're just as evil and as dark as you are oh and there's there's really dark really evil people out there all that's doing is creating a mechanism for you and i to fall into the scapegoating snare it that is the matrix everybody's talking about escaping the matrix and seeing what's going on behind the scenes that is what's going on behind the scenes that is the 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 thing that we keep perpetuating over and over and over and over again with with one another is this idea that somebody out there is just evil and wicked and doing this and if they would do right and live right and not perpetuate these things on us then we would be okay and then we create this idea that we're the sons of the light we're the army of the light we're the ones that are on the side of good we're the ones that are on the side of right and it's always people we don't know we don't know much about so for us you know during the war on terror it's the muslims it's the people in the middle east man if they would just you know do right. And you know what? For the Muslims, it's Christians. It's the people in the West. It's the people who have a lot of money. They're the ones that are to blame. And so each one is stuck in a false category. But you know what? When you, when, and, and if you travel, I've had the privilege of traveling and meeting people from different cultures. And you know what I found out? People are all the same. We're all a mixture of good and we're all a mixture of, of evil. We're all a mixture of things that we like about ourselves and things that we don't like about ourselves. But here's the thing. I believe ultimately every person, uh, is working towards their own good. If not the good of everything else, that, that everyone's aim and projection. See, I, I believe in the power of good in this sense, of well-being in this sense. Let me put it that way. Because if I say good, you're going to think in this moral category that does not exist. But I think everybody's moving towards well-being. I've seen it in counseling. If you think about it, your body is wired to heal itself. It isn't always successful, but it's wired to heal itself. Some of the problems with COVID, the coronavirus disease, is the over-responding and the overworking and the depletion of the immune system to kick that thing out. But psychologically, we do that as well. Psychologically, we're wired towards psychological health. But it's easy for us to take people that we don't know and blame them for the problem. They're the ones to blame. The Muslims are the ones to blame. The Russians are the ones to blame. The communists are the ones to blame. Uh, in the KKK, it's, 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 the, it's the Negroes and it's the, it's, the, it's the Mexicans and it's the whatever that, that they think is to blame. And so they have the, their disparaging words. It's the Catholics. It's the Jews. It's, it, 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 it's, it's whatever, right? It's people, that their skin color is different than ours, so they're to blame. And if they would just do right, and if they would just act right, and if they would just live right, we can do it from a moral perspective. It's the homosexuals, if the homosexuals would just live right. 
I know I'm belaboring the point. I need to get off of it. <laughs> I hope it's making sense to you, though. I hope you can see it. I hope you can see it, what we do. And so that tension builds and builds and builds and builds and builds and builds until it erupts. But here's, here's the scary thing, and here's why I'm addressing this. And then we'll get back to Jesus. The reason I'm addressing this is because there's so much tension right now with COVID, and we're just at the beginning stages of this. There are going to be people that perhaps, I mean, God forbid, we hope not, but there are probably going to be people that you know that get really, really sick with this. There might be people that you know that die with this. If you don't feel the pain emotionally from the grief or you manage to stay healthy or maybe you're one of those out there that thinks it's a media conspiracy. You're going to feel the economic pain. You're going to feel the pain of being shut in. You're going to feel the pain of social distancing. And that tension is just beginning. And that tension is worldwide. Is worldwide. It is going to build and build and build and build. And if history tells us anything, I would not be surprised if, if we as human beings don't find another way to address this, that wars begin or maybe even a world war begins to break out because of the tension and the pain of the masses that's building up. Because as that tension builds up, we're going to need somebody to blame. We're going to need somebody to blame for this. Might be in America. We'll figure out, depending on which side you're on, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats. The Democrats will blame Trump. The Republicans will blame Obama. They've already started. They've already started. You know, well, we inherited this mess. Well, if they hadn't done this, see? See the scapegoating mechanism? Well, if the House or the Senate would do right, we'll start that particularly in election year, it's inevitable, because they take advantage of that to get us to vote for them. Maybe we'll blame the Chinese. You think that's not a real thing? I mean, you know, people think it's ridiculous to uh, when, when someone like the president calls it a Chinese disease and he gets corrected or called on it. People think, well, it, it is. You know, it was the Spanish flu. It was MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. You know, there's nothing wrong with calling it from the place it originated. But let me tell you a story. University where I work, when this thing broke out before we shut down back in the middle of March, when this thing had just broken out, uh, there was a uh, uh, young man of Asian descent um, who came into our office looking for a mask, wanting a, a surgical mask. And we thought maybe he was sick. And so we asked, you know, why do you need the surgical mask? And he said, because people on this campus won't talk to me. They won't talk to me. I'm not sick at all, but I think if I put a mask on, maybe people will start talking to me again. You can look at it. People quit eating at Chinese restaurants, that kind of thing. Tension had barely begun. So imagine how that could erupt into some new kind of race war or scapegoating sort of thing. Not saying that it will or that it has to, but it's possible that it will. So, enter Jesus. Jesus enters Judaism, and he's the truth teller. See, Judaism was built on this dualism, just like everything else, because it came out of Zoroastrianism. It was built on duality, and it was built on blame, really. 
the idea was Israel was in exile. They didn't have the Davidic kingdom like they had wanted. Uh, and there was a lot of infighting within Israel. And who was to blame? They hated the Romans. They hated the Samaritans. They hated the Gentiles. They hated each other. So you have all these wars and battles going on between, you know, just like today, right? I mean, you can see it just like today. And Jesus steps in. And he begins to call them on the carpet. He begins to teach loving the neighbor. He begins to teach helping the Good Samaritan. He begins to say, instead of fighting the oppressor in Rome, love the oppressor in Rome. Instead of fighting the darkness, realize that the darkness is within you. See, the issue with the Pharisees was they were always looking on the outside of the dish, right? And wanting to find who's to blame because Deuteronomy set up blame. Deuteronomy set up blame. Go read it. Uh, it was the people's fault. Uh, when you understand the historical context of it, Jude, Judah, which was clinging to the Deuteronomists, to the legalists in the Bible, was blaming Israel to a large degree because they were the ones that were worshiping Asherah. And, and, you know, I don't have time to get into all that. Leading the Jewish people astray, the Samaritans, the Gentiles, leading the Jewish people astray. And so why are we in exile? Why are we in Babylon? Why don't we have the kingdom that we should have? Why is there all this tension? Well, it's because somebody's not doing right. Because Deuteronomy says, if we would be obedient, we would possess the land. But if we didn't, you know, all this stuff that we're experiencing, we're experiencing because of our disobedience. You know, the book of Job was written to address this very thing. We'll have to come back to that. But it's a false concept of God. It's a projection of God that says, if I'm good, if I'm obedient, I'll be blessed. If I'm bad and I'm disobedient, I'll be cursed. It's not how life works. But that's what the legalists were saying. And so Jesus is showing up and saying, this is completely false. God causes it to the sun to shine on the good and the evil. He causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. So be perfect in your love. Not, not love perfectly, but be indiscriminate in your love. Don't just love your neighbors. Love everybody. And don't be aware of the darkness in everybody else. Don't look at the speck in your brother's eye, but realize the darkness within your own self. Don't go stone somebody for committing adultery with this woman when you've been lusting after this woman in your heart as well. You're killing your brother for the same thing you're doing. Why? You're projecting your shadow, your dark side. You're trying to live this dualistic frame where you're totally putting yourself in a positive light and not looking at your darkness. And so Jesus steps in and he becomes a truth teller. And because he becomes a truth teller, he becomes dangerous. Just like the truth teller in a family becomes dangerous. And so... He becomes the scapegoat. So the crucifixion of Jesus has nothing to do with sinners in the hands of an angry God. It has everything to do with God in the hands of angry sinners. That he becomes handed over. So if you, if you can imagine in ancient Israel when the goat is being marched through the camp and they're mocking the goat and they're spitting on the goat and they're pulling the hair out of the goat and they're throwing rocks at the goat and they're hitting the goat with sticks and then they lead him out to a hill to throw him off. Jesus... When he's walking the Via Dolorosa, when he's walking the, the trail of suffering, his passion, and he's carrying his cross through a crowd of people and they're mocking him and they're scoffing him and they're beating him with sticks and they're saying, prophesy who hit you and are you the king of the Jews now? He's very much playing the role of Azazel. Oh, sorry, that's, that's the Hebrew term. He's very much playing the role of the scapegoat. He's being the scapegoat for the nation. He's being the one upon which 
the anger and the frustration and the violence is being taken out upon so that the tension can be released and things can come back into equilibrium or so that by his wounds we might be healed. So that by him we might be reconciled to one another. And then he's, he's hung there on the cross and dies. He's the symbol of our own projections. He becomes, if you will, the recipient of our shadow self. He becomes the recipient of our anger. He becomes the recipient of our violence. Not just, not just at one another, but also at God. So when we see, when we think about Jesus on the cross, it's that place where we can rage at God because our world is the way it is. Where we can rage at God because our life is the way that it is. Where we can curse God because of the situation that we're in. And he takes all of that into himself and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So... Really, the crucifixion of Christ and the scapegoat doesn't really matter if it's a historical event. See, the whole legalistic religious exchange of Christianity that says you have to believe in this historical person, this historical event as a fact, as actually the way it happened, is what brings you healing and salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. But when you can exalt within your own self the archetype of Christ dying for your sins, bearing the burden of your burden, bearing your anger and your projection at yourself, bearing your anger and your projection at God, bearing your darkness, bearing your pain, and you really can take it to the cross, not as a historical event, but as an archetype. And you can look up and you can partake of communion as the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord as an archetype that says, this this gives me a place. This gives me a place within my own psyche. This gives me an altar within my own psyche. This gives me an energy and a power that flows from God. This gives me an energy and a power that flows from Christ where I can lay down my burdens. I can lay down my anger at one another, at other people, and I can release it, and I can find healing and forgiveness. Listen, Part of the reason people can't find forgiveness is because they have no place to put their pain. And so they project it onto other people. I'm really sensitive as much as I can be as a, uh, I mean, I'm as white and as American and as Protestant in my family and upbringing as you can be. I try to be really, really sensitive to the pain of uh, minorities. Um, I try to be sensitive to their cultural pain. I try to be sensitive to... Uh, what my ancestors uh, perpetrated in their lives. And I realized that Jesus arose from a people group that was despised by the powerful, despised by the Romans. Um, I realized that the Bible is told to a certain degree through the lens of slaves and people that are in oppression. And Jesus rises as the archetype in the midst of that that says, I understand your pain, I feel your pain, I feel your rejection, I feel what it is to be despised and rejected of man. I am a man of sorrows and familiar with grief. You can esteem me as stricken of God and afflicted, but the power of the Lamb of God, the power of the cross, the power of the Christ to rise up 
and become a place where we can lay mutually the pain of humanity, where we can find reconciliation with one another and realize that really is the power of the gospel, that it can heal those hurts and wounds. Individually, they can heal those hurts and wounds within a family. It can heal those hurts and wounds within a society. And in that way, it wipes us clean. In that way, it takes away our sins so that we can get a fresh start and we can begin to choose to relate to each other, not through the lens of duality or dualism, but through the lens of love, not through the lens of sinfall and redemption, uh, not through the lens of blame and shame, not through the lens of us and them, the sons of light against the sons of Belial, the sons of light against the sons of darkness. We're going to replay it. We're going to replay it, gang. We're going to replay it. There's going to be the armies of the Antichrist arising uh, in some circles. Watch this in religious circles because they are absolutely the worst. Watch the psychological projections that are going to happen. Watch the stories that are going to be told as these archetypes rise up. And if we're not careful, it's, it is going to lead to rioting. It is going to lead to a lot of societal pain. And so somewhere along the way, but see, here's, here's the power of it. I think that if enough of us heal, if enough of us reject this, if enough of us awaken, if enough of us get out of this dualistic frame, and we really can walk in the power of the cross, the power of the Christ, See, that's the gospel. Now, if you go back and you read the, the, read the book of Romans, read the book of Galatians through that lens, and we understand it's about the reconciling of Jews and Gentiles coming together to worship together. Romans isn't about God reconciling with you. It's about Jews and Gentiles coming together to live as one community in Christ. Justification by faith is about belonging to the community, not about belonging to God. But anyway, that's for another day. All right. So I hope that helps you. Um, I hope you'll think about that this week. I hope you'll do some examining of what is it within your own consciousness. What, what's your pain? Let's, let's take this time this week. What's the pain that's rising within your life because of COVID-19? What's the tension that you're feeling? Become aware of it and don't project it. Don't try to find that evil other out there to blame. But, uh, but, Try to think, how can I use the cross of Christ, use the Lamb of God as a vehicle and a mechanism for my own healing and transformation so that I can release my hurts, my sins, my offenses, my darkness, but I can also release my projection of darkness onto this world, my darkness onto God, my darkness onto others. You understand what I mean by that? And begin to live holy. W-H-O-L-E-Y. <laughs> Did I spell that right? <laughs> Begin to live from a place of wholeness and authenticity and well-being and acceptance, unconditional, total love and acceptance of yourself and other people. All right, gang. That's all I've got for you. Um, hopefully you're doing well. Thank you so much for watching. I'll go back and read the comments and try to... Um, do that. Jamie, I don't know if you're still on, but um, I know we didn't talk about it last night, but um, if we could maybe um, set up a, a Zoom group or something, we'll put the link back on here. So if you want to check back in a few minutes, the link for Zoom will be on there, and we'll just have some time of fellowship. Um, anyway, I went long today. Uh, it's one of my passions. I've preached this message before. If you guys have been coming to the Awakening Center listening to me for any time, you know I love the work of Rene Girard, uh, and I've been looking at this for a long time. But again, um, God bless you, love you, be well, take care, and uh, look forward to seeing you again another time.